Good morning. Happy Sabbath to you. I do have to introduce a special guest here today, and I'm thankful for all our visitors. It's good to see Miguel. But there's a couple here that I saw just a week ago, and where I saw them was in prison. They volunteer in the prison. I probably shouldn't introduce you that way, but uh, <laughs> but they were in the prison before I was. And um, every Wednesday, or every other Wednesday, they have a Bible study, and on one Sunday out of the month, uh, they have a, one of the services. And so uh, it's a real pleasure to introduce Elder Morrow and his beautiful bride. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, you're from what areas? Is it Streetsboro or is that closer? Twinsburg. Okay. All right. Very nice. Nice to have you here with us. Yeah. Last time I saw them, he was sitting around a table with about 15 gentlemen who were interested in the things he was sharing. And uh, I'm just so thankful that you're investing in these men there and it's a privilege to work together. So thank you for being here with us. Okay. So we, we had been studying a theme on the state of the dead and on immortality. And it's also communion Sabbath, but it happens that when we talk about communion and talk about the Lord's death, we can talk about what kind of death did Jesus experience. Jesus didn't experience the death of someone who had a heart attack or something like that. He's not, it's not a death that everybody faces. In fact, the death that Jesus faced is something that no other human being has actually faced at this time. But it is the kind of death people will face a thousand years from now in the judgment. It's a death we can talk about, but we can learn something about it by looking at what we find about what Jesus went through because he died for us. He took upon himself a death that we deserved, but by believing in him, we don't have to face that death. We may die, the death that everybody faces, but we won't have to die that second death. Okay? I want us to begin with uh, these two very familiar verses. God forbid that I should glory, Paul says, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ in him what? Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't interested in Bible prophecy. doesn't mean he never said anything about the law or Christian living or anything like that. He talked about all kinds of subjects, dealing with problems in churches and trying to encourage them. But what he is saying is that the more I understand God's love at the cross and God's character, which the cross reveals, I understand every other Bible topic better. That I'm able to share the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in a different way because I see what Jesus did for me. And it makes me hunger that much more for his coming because he died for me. Not just because he died, because he experienced the second death. I want to see him again. And I want to tell everybody about this loving Jesus Christ who experienced the death that the unrepentant will experience. So that I don't have to. And you know something? The world, the whole world deserves to hear about such a loving Savior 
who was willing at whatever cost to himself, he would do what he could to save us so that we wouldn't have to go through that experience of which there is no hope of a resurrection. Notice this statement here. The mystery of the cross explains all other mysteries. And the light that streams from Calvary, the attributes of God, which had filled us with fear and awe, appear beautiful and attractive. Mercy, tenderness, and parental love are seen to blend with holiness, justice, and power. While we behold the majesty of his throne, high and lifted up and lifted, we see his character in the gracious manifestations. And notice what it says. And comprehend as what? As never before the significance of the endearing title, Our Father. Before there was sin, all the intelligent beings throughout the universe, did they know God was love? Absolutely. They could see it in the beautiful things God had made. They could see in all that God had provided, God is love and God is holy. Did they know that? Did they know God was all-knowing and all-powerful? But did they know that God was forgiving? You see, how would they know until there was someone to forgive? How could they see that in God? And yet that was a very part of his essence of God is to be merciful. But they never had to see mercy before because there wasn't anybody who needed mercy. Everything was perfect. Everybody was happy and holy and without disease. But because of this experience, God is able to take the tragedy that happened in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and brought disease and death to our world, that God was able to use that to demonstrate and help us to see as we'd never seen God before in ways we had not contemplated, that God is not only awesome and one to be feared in a good way and holy, but he is so much more loving than I knew before. He is merciful and he is tender and he is patient. Because all these attributes came out because of the fall. And now God was able to not just let the entire universe know more about who God is. Because that's part of the mystery. Even even Adam and Eve, there was a little bit of a mystery. Mystery doesn't mean in the Bible something you can never understand. But it's something you explore. And they were exploring to know this wonderful God that had made this perfect planet. And given them perfect bodies. And they continue to look at the all of God. And it's, it's a mystery, not because you can't understand God, but year after year, you can know him better. And that's what the cross revealed, that God is even more loving than we knew. In order to rightly understand and... Oh, in order to be rightly understood and appreciated, every truth in the word of God, from Genesis to Revelation must be studied in the light which streams from the cross of Calvary and in connection with the wondrous essential truth of the Savior's atonement. Those who study the Redeemer's wonderful sacrifice grow in grace and knowledge. And the reason I put down at the bottom, to rightly understand God's character and the nature of his law, we must study them in reference to the cross. Is what I kind of just explained. We know more of God's character because of the cross. Is that true? Because we look at a father giving his only son that we could be his sons and daughters for eternity. And what a choice. Do I give them my son who's been with me for eternity to go through that experience 
so that you, he doesn't lose us as sons and daughters. What a choice. Or do I allow the disobedient sons and daughters just to pay for their own disobedience? It's a choice he could have made. But he says, you know, I'm going to give my son to you because I don't want to lose you as a son and a daughter. I want to enjoy your presence because I created you actually for fellowship. I didn't create you and just, you know, wind you up and let you run your course. I actually created you to know you and for you to know me. It's a wonderful, wonderful God. But the reason I put the character of God and the nature of God, because, you know, we can learn everything in the Bible becomes brighter and more more precious to us because in view of the cross. But we as a people, there's something we need to share with the world that the world doesn't fully understand yet. And we don't yet ourselves. We still are studying God's character. And the more we understand God's character of love, the more we will want to tell the world about a loving God. And the more I realize what happened to the cross and I see what sin caused in the death of Christ. And I go and I think about what he went through because God could not do away with what? His law. It's perfect. And what Christ went through tells me how essential that law is. And that's something that we're to give to the world, not just about the Sabbath, though that needs to be restored, but all of Ten Command- God's Ten Commandments become that much more precious. And we realize that the law of God is a principle for life, not death. Amen. It wasn't a way of restricting us, it was a way of freeing us yes. from the things that sin and death cause, right? Yeah. Or sin and suffering. So let's look at our next slide here. Without the cross, man could have no union with the Father. Is that a true statement? That's right, because sin separated us with the Father. We could not even see him face to face. So if Christ doesn't pay this price, there's no hope for us. There would be no hope of ever seeing the face of the Father. On it depends our every hope. Through the cross, we learn that the Heavenly Father loves us with a love that is is infinite. That's, That's quite a statement. Then with the light that streams from Calvary shining in our faces, we go forth to reveal this light to those in darkness. Uh, Alina was looking at something on a, in a book, and it had this very similar precious thought. That, try to imagine this scene. In heaven on October 22, 1844, some special event happened and Jesus goes into the most holy place following the Father. You know, angels bring him in. And the books are the books are open. And what starts? The judgment. How many people in the world need to know about that? Everybody. Imagine the solemnity of that scene. The books hadn't been opened before October 22nd, 1844. But when those books opened, God needed a people to tell the world. The books are open. The books are open. Get ready. Because he's going to come back and reward every man according to his works in those books. The time had come when time would be short. God raised us up to tell the world, the books are open. The books are open. But he also raised us up to tell the world about this wonderful God of love. You know, our message isn't one just of keeping the law. It's about the only way to keep the law is because we serve such a loving God who wants to write that perfect law in our hearts and our minds so that we can be his ability and children and live with him in peace 
for eternity. What a, what a plan. And the more rightly under, I understand the cross, the more I realize that God loves me, loves me and, the, and, and, to, and the more I know God loves me, the more likely I am to share his love with others and have this sense, you know, I can't contain it. I've got to tell people how loving God really is. Okay? The next statement, when we study the divine character in the light of the cross, we see mercy and tenderness and forgiveness blended with equity and justice. In the contemplation of Christ, we linger on the shore of a love that is measureless. The cross, and I'm not saying that there isn't more to learn about God's character since the cross, right? But the ultimate revelation of God is the cross. God is more than creator. And there's a lot of things. I mean, throughout the Bible, the Bible talks about God as creator and there's none other. And the Bible talks about God being holy and God is love. But there's something about the cross that tells us something about God that is the ultimate expression of who he really is. Imagine God willing to do whatever to save people who've chosen to disobey him. He says, I still love you. And no matter what you've done and no matter how many times you've done it, I have a plan to bring you back because I love you. And there's something that would always tie us to God as nothing else could. And that is, is something we need to contemplate. You know, the Gospels, the life of Christ, a third of the Gospels is about the last week of his life. So what should that tell us? It means I should study his Sermon on the Mount, and I should study his parables, but of all the things I study, I should spend more time contemplating the cost that he was willing to pay for me. Because that's what motivates me to want to serve him. And listen to the other things that he spoke about. Uh, Did I switch it? Yep. Oh, what a statement this is. The instant man accepted the temptations of Satan and did the very things God had said he should not do, Christ, the Son of God, stood between the living and the dead, saying, let the punishment fall on me. I will stand in man's place. He shall have another chance. I want you to just take a moment right now, John. I want you to just think about that scene. Did the father and son know man would sin? He knew they would sin, right? But there did come a moment that when Adam and Eve did sin, and I want you to imagine, as soon as they sinned, and the father knew his son was going to say this, but he says it anyway. Adam and Eve sin, and Jesus says, let me stand in their place. Could you imagine that moment in universal history? Let me take their sins upon me to give them a chance. Isn't that something? Wow. But what does that mean? What does it mean? Christ's death on the cross was not a make-believe substitution. If Christ standing in the place of the sinner comes short in any degree, Mm -hmm. then to that degree the ransom was not fully paid. So let me say it this way. If Christ did not experience Mm -hmm. the second death, 
then he did not stand in the place of the sinner who will experience his second death who doesn't repent. You see my point here? I don't believe the spirit of prophecy says he died the second death, but there's so many statements that basically say he did. If Christ does not experience what the, in the end, what people will experience who do not receive salvation. If he does not experience what they'll experience, then he didn't stand in their place. If he only dies a death that everybody else dies, that's not the, that's not the penalty. The final penalty is the second death, of which there's no hope of a resurrection. So he had an experience where he was has this cup trembling in his hands. Do I drink it or not drink it? Because there would have been a moment where he would not have known that by giving himself, he would ever see the Father again. Is that right? You imagine that situation? A son, his only son who'd been with him from eternity, willing to give up existence, if that's what it cost, that you and I could be with the Father forever. You'll never find a greater love than that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No love like that had ever been expressed before, which why Jesus says, love one another. I give you a new commandment. Yes, sir. Well, it wasn't new. It had been printed in the Old Testament. Yes, sir. But it was new because nobody had ever loved people that much. Yes, yes, it's not that people didn't love their dogs and their pets and one another. And, and nobody loved like that. Yes, The death of Christ was to be the convincing, everlasting argument that the law of God is as unchangeable as his throne. The agonies of the Garden of Gethsemane, the insult, the mockery, and the abuse heaped upon God's dear Son, the, the horrors and ignominy of the crucifixion furnish sufficient and thrilling demonstration that God's justice, when it punishes, does the work thoroughly. The fact that his own Son, the surety for man, was not spared is an argument that will stand to all eternity before saint and sinner, before the universe of God, to testify that he will not excuse the transgression of his law. Every offense against God's law, however minute, is set down in the reckoning. And when the sword of justice is taken in hand, it will do the work for impenitent transgressors, those who won't receive eternal life. That was done to who? The divine son, divine sufferer. See, it doesn't say he died the second death, but it does. Christ experienced with the impenitent sinner. Christ already experienced. You see that statement? When the sword of justice is taken in hand, it will do the work for impenitent transgressors a thousand years from now. That was, past tense, done to who? So he experienced that. He experienced what people who are not saved will experience a thousand years from, a thousand years from now. He experienced that 2,000 years ago. He didn't die the death everybody dies. It was more. In fact, as we'll see a couple statements here, he experienced more than what they'll experience a thousand years from now. And so when I look at that statement also, I say, if I would take more time studying what Christ went through beginning in towards as he began to enter Gethsemane, I would have a greater and higher appreciation of God's law. 
But when I don't take the time to see what he suffered, I'm going to hold God's law in lower esteem. Does that make sense? When I really view and take time to see what he went through, what the results of sin are when you take upon the sin is if you committed them. That's how high God's law is. He can't do away with it because it's a law of liberty. So when I see him sweating great drops of blood, I say, Father, all your law is so holy. Jesus would have died in Gethsemane had not the angels come to refresh him. And imagine being Peter, James, or John, and he says, wait here, and he goes a little further, probably from here to there, just so they could still see him and hear him. And to think that if the angels had not come to strengthen him, he would have died in Gethsemane. Imagine after three hours of a nap, you're James, Peter, James, or John, and you wake up and Jesus is dead. Because if he's not strengthened for the battle ahead of him, he's a dead savior in Gethsemane. Before anybody touches him. That, my friends, is the essence of the second death. The second death isn't God going around torturing people. It's not predominantly a physical thing. It's the mental anguish. It's it's the guilt. The seared conscience that we only sense a little bit now because of God's mercy. We'll get more into that here in a little bit. Yes. The Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 3, page 116. It is a fearful thing for the unrepenting sinner to fall into the hands of the living God. This is proved by the history of the destruction of the old world by flood, by the record of the fire which fell from heaven and destroyed the inhabitants of Sodom. Notice that's the context. And never was this proof so great an extent as in the agony of Christ the Son of the infinite God, when he bore the wrath of God for a sinful world. No sorrow, no agony can measure with that which was endured by the Son of God. So Jesus didn't die the death, everybody. There was more. There was more agony. There was more sorrow. Because he felt the weight of all our sins upon himself as if he committed them. Yes, sir. Okay. Man has not been made a sin bearer, and he will never know the horror of the curse of sin which the Savior bore. That's quite a statement. No sorrow can bear any comparison with the sorrow of human, or upon him, the sorrow of him upon whom the wrath of God fell with overwhelming force. Human nature can endure but a little amount of test and trial. The finite can only endure finite measure, and human nature succumbs. But the nature of Christ had a greater capacity for suffering, for the human existed in the divine nature, and created a capacity for suffering to endure that which resulted from the sins of a lost world as a whole. The agony which Christ endured broadens, deepens, and gives a more extended conception of the character of sin and the character of the retribution which God will bring upon those who continue in sin. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ to the repentant, believing sinner. How finite are we? Can a person lose their life pretty quickly in this world? You know, we we work in a prison, and I I was walking down through the yard and hearing guys talk about, 
yeah, they did something to my family and, and I took their life. And God says, yeah, they deserved it. How long did it take them to murder that person? I don't know. They strangled him. What, take a minute? Pull a trigger. It only takes four or five pounds of pressure. Pull a trigger. They're dead in less than a minute. It doesn't take much to snuff out a human life. We are very finite. Takes almost hardly any effort at all. And so the impenitent experiencing a second death can't be long because they'll raise up in these corruptible bodies still. And it can't be something physical, mostly, in the second death. Because the human frame can't endure much to begin with. And what would they learn from that? What would the universe learn from that? But they experience, and we'll see a slide here, mental anguish. They will have to experience the full weight of their sins because they didn't give them to Jesus. We experience a little bit now, but in that second death, they will mostly see their lives crushed. and, And they'll be weakened so that when the fire comes... They're basically almost dead anyway. So, and that lake of fire is to is to cleanse the earth predominantly, right? Yes. This isn't God's mean of torturing people. Yes. He's not an executioner. He's a life giver. Yes. What he's doing in the second death, he's simply allowing people to experience the weight of their own sins because they didn't give them to Jesus. Yes. Okay? But it was not the spear thrust. It was not the pain of the cross that caused the death of Jesus. That cry uttered with a loud voice. At the moment of death, the stream of blood and water that flowed from his side declared that he died of a broken heart. His heart was broken by what? Mental anguish. He was slain by the sin of the world. So when we have the scripture read and it's, It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, about the ninth hour, Christ said with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sakbathani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me alone? You see, and we'll see it aside what he meant by that. But you and I have never had to feel that way. Just a little bit. Enough to get us to know that we need to repent. God is merciful. But in that second death, it will be mental anguish. Because remember the statement. He stood in the place of the sinner. And so if this is what Christ mostly experienced, therefore, those who die the second death will experience mostly what? Mental anguish. Not physical pain. Does that make sense? I mean, it's kind of simple math, right? Oh, was there ever suffering and sorrow like that endured by the dying Savior? It was the sense of his father's displeasure which made his cup so bitter. It was not bodily suffering which so quickly ended the life of Christ upon the cross. It was the crushing weight of the sins of the world and a sense of his father's wrath. The fierce temptation that his own father had forever left him caused that piercing cry from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Abandon me. Cast me aside. Given me up. Given up to what? We'll see a slide here pretty soon. 
Wow. He experienced something that no human being. He experienced more than people who experienced the second death. A lot more. Because he had more energy. The human was hit in the divine. He had, he had more capacity. We saw that. He had more capacity to endure this. But there's two things that are brought out here. Christ was crushed from the weight of guilt of sin. And you know what people do with sin when they do something wrong? Even when they know it's wrong, is sometimes we justify it so we don't feel so guilty. And sometimes we do that by blaming somebody else for what we did. So when, when I talk to guys in prison, you know what I'm listening for? Personal accountability. But when they start saying, well, I did this because someone else... Well, they may have had wrong associations. They shouldn't have been in the place where they were with certain people that got them involved in this. But the reality is they made a choice. And they'll need to own up to that choice. Because the reality is they made a choice and they did wrong. And their wrongs are different than our wrongs here because it put them in prison and we're not in prison. That doesn't mean we haven't sinned. We've all sinned. But our sins didn't put us in prison. Their sins did. And so, but still, personal accountability, right? Admit that I'm a sinner. Chief of sinners. Many have suffered death by slow tortures. Others have suffered death by crucifixion. But here's the question. And what does the death of Christ, dear son, differ from these? If the sufferings of Christ consisted in physical pain alone, then his death was no more painful than that of some of the martyrs. But bodily pain was not was but a small part of the agony of God's dear son. The sins of the world were laid upon him. Also the sense of his father's wrath as he suffered the penalty of the law of transgression. It was these that crushed his divine soul. So those are repeated from the previous slide. The separation that sin makes between God and man was fully realized. Which means it hadn't been realized like that before. And keenly felt by the innocent, suffering man of Calvary. He was oppressed by the powers of darkness. He had not one ray of light to brighten the future. It was in this terrible hour of darkness, the face of his father hidden, legions of evil angels enshrouding him, the sins of the world upon him, the words uh, that the words were wrenched from his lips, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't know exactly what it means, God's wrath for sin, but it seems to be connected of God's displeasure of sin. Jesus had never experienced God's displeasure before. He had always been an obedient son, so he had always walked in the light of his father's love. He'd never known displeasure because he never disappointed his father. I only do what he tells me to do. I only go where he tells me to go. And now he felt something he had never felt before. But he felt all of it. He felt it in totality of what those will experience in the second death. Nobody has felt the totality of their guilt. And he felt it for the world. Isn't that something? So that you and I would never have to ever feel the full measure of our guilt. Because what would it do? It would crush us. And like I said, if the angels didn't come to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he dies in Gethsemane. There's no cross. There's no seven unjust trials. He just simply dies in Gethsemane because he needed to be strengthened to face the rest of it. That's how crushing guilt can be. 
And if you dealt in mental health, you realize there's a lot of people in mental institutions. And Zolt would know. There's people who are in mental institutions because they can't forgive themselves. They keep thinking about what they've done, and it's driven them absolutely nuts. You know, you run into people like that. But you know, friends, if you give your sins to Christ, give them to him. And don't take them back. It's his glory to take them, to free you from guilt. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times. But the thing is here that the sins of the world fell upon him, the wrath of his father, that displeasure. But there's something added in this statement. There's another statement here. But he went through something where legions of even angels. The father's face is hidden. He doesn't see the father's face, but he sees the faces of evil angels that are around him. It's going to get worse than this in the next slide, I think. It's worse than this. Nobody had ever, ever gone through this before. Jesus had been earnestly conversing with his disciples and instructing them, but as he neared Gethsemane, he became strangely silent. He had often visited this spot for meditation and prayer, but never with a heart so full of sorrows upon this night of his last agony. Throughout his life on earth, he had walked in the light of God's presence. When in conflict with men who were inspired by the very spirit of Satan, he could say, he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. But now he seemed to be shut out of the light of God's sustaining presence. Now he was numbered with the transgressors. The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear. Upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dreadful does this sin appear to him, so great is the weight of guilt which he must bear, that he is tempted to fear it will shut him out forever from his father's love. Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, he exclaims, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Has anybody in this world ever experienced where God didn't love them? Where God wasn't knocking at the door of their heart. See, every, the Holy Spirit's trying to woo everybody to Christ. Nobody in this world has ever stood in a position where there's no light. Heavenly agencies are trying to tell them, God loves you. God loves you. But in the second death, it doesn't mean God doesn't love them. It's just that now... There's that a separation of God's displeasure towards sin. He loved them, but they chose sin. And God's going to now destroy sin. And since they clung to sin, he, they are destroyed in that. But Christ went through something that nobody else had done. It gets worse. Upon reaching the garden, the disciples looked anxiously for his usual place of retirement, that their master might rest. Every step that he now took was with labored effort. He groaned aloud as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. Twice his companions supported him, or he would have fallen to the earth. He went a little distance from them, not so far that they couldn't both see and hear him, and fell prostrate upon the ground. He felt that by sin he was being separated from his father. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep, that his spirit shuddered before it. This agony he must not exert his divine power to escape. As man he must suffer the consequences of man's sin. As man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. 
With the issues of the conflict before him, Christ's soul was filled with dread of separation from God. Now notice this. Satan told him that if he became the surety for a sinful will, the separation would be what? Eternal. You'll never see your father again. Wow. He would be identified with Satan's king. That's even worse. And would never more be one with God. The people who claim to be above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you. They are seeking to destroy you. The foundation, the center, sealed the promises made to them as a peculiar people. One of your own disciples who has listened to your instruction has been among the foremost in church activities will betray you. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. All will, all will forsake you. Christ's whole being abhorred the thought. Jesus didn't just feel the weight of our sins. And the separation of his father. The devil was there. And he was trying to encourage Jesus not to go through with it. Father, if this cup could pass from me, why would he even say that? The thought of never seeing his father again. Can you imagine that? What would you do? The cup's in your hand. You get to make a choice. If you drink the cup, you'll never see God again. But if you drink the cup, others will. It's quite a situation. What's your choice? And the choice he made for you. Yes. See, drink the cup. Wow. No greater love hath a man than this. But on top of all that, if that weren't enough, to have the devil speaking into your ear and say, don't do it. It's a worthless cause. You're dying for nothing. Nobody loves you here. Your disciples don't love you. They've all left you. They're even denying you at this very moment. Why die? And just the thing that made him shudder that's in here is that Christ would not only not see the Father again, he would actually become part of whose kingdom? Could you imagine that thought running through your mind? That's terrible. Do you know who replaced Lucifer's position? Gabriel. Gabriel, and I don't have a slide up here because I know our time is limited, was the one that came to strengthen him. Lucifer should have been that if some other angel did. Lucifer would have had the opportunity to strengthen the Savior if some other angel rebelled and just, you know, misled the earth. But instead, Satan is trying, he, Lucifer becomes Satan. Is it encourage him in insinuating this is all for a lost cause? But the one that takes Lucifer's place says, could you imagine? Gabriel doesn't want to see Jesus suffer. Does he? Gabriel doesn't want to see Jesus go through seven unjust trials and be crucified. So what does that tell you about Gabriel? He loves us too. It's not just that God loves you. Gabriel strengthened Jesus to drink the cup. Because Gabriel loves you too. Can you imagine what is awaiting for us in heaven? The redeemed going to heaven are going to a place where everybody in that city loves you. Therefore, 
Should we not love one another? Should we not tell the world that God is love? They deserve to know, no matter what they've done. But it is the God we serve. And we know this mostly because of what happened where? At the cross. The cross opens our eyes to a, a part of God's character that we could not have seen without the cross. And let me just, I think there's one more slide. When men and women can more fully comprehend the magnitude of the great sacrifice which was made by the majesty of heaven in dying and man's deed, then will the plan of salvation be magnified. And reflections of Calvary will awaken tender, sacred, and lively emotions in the Christian's heart. Praises to God and the Lamb will be in their hearts and upon their lips. Pride and self-esteem cannot flourish in the hearts that keep afresh in memory the scenes of Calvary. This world will appear of but little value to those who appreciate the great price of man's redemption, the precious blood of God's dear Son. All the riches of the world are not of sufficient value to redeem one perishing soul. Not one perishing soul. Who can measure the love of Christ felt for a lost world as he hung upon the cross, suffering for the sins of guilty man? This love was immeasurable, and it was infinite. In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we practice open communion. Which means if you are a member of another church, we don't question your commitment to Christ. If you've given your life to Christ, you can participate in this Lord's Supper with us. If you're baptized in Christ. And the way we do it in the Adventist church is before we take communion together up here, as we go downstairs, the men on one side, the women on the other. Is that correct? And we will do what Jesus did. You'll find a partner and wash one another's feet. Because one of the greatest attributes of appreciating what Christ did in Gethsemane was to receive the spirit of humility. Christ humbled himself even to the what? Death of the cross. The greater I appreciate, the more humility I receive from above, the more I will appreciate the humility of Jesus in becoming a man and dying the death of the cross. So, before we part, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. We'll come back. We'll ask God to bless our emblems. But all are invited to partake of the foot washing. You're not forced to do that. Uh, You can remain up here if you choose. But you're welcome to take part in that and find a partner and we'll come up here together for communion. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the love of Jesus, your love in giving your son, Jesus' love and willing to pay whatever the price, is such a game changer that the universe is now more secure. And even worlds that will be created a million years from now will ask, why is God's kingdom on planet Earth? And we could say because it was here that the Son of God became the Son of Man and died for a world that didn't love him back. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And so these new creatures will have an appreciation of God that those prior to sin didn't know for a long, long time. 
But all the universe will be knit together with a beautiful, more greater manifestation of who God truly is. He truly is a God of love. So, Father, as we separate at this time in the foot washing ceremony, we would ask that we would receive the gift of humility, that it's not just another act that we do and and worship, but to realize that it symbolizes something we can receive, a spirit that we must have before we enter into the last day events. And so, Father, be with us in both services, the washing of feet and the communion service is our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.